if your grace is greater than all of our sin, O oh Lord, your grace must be awesome because our sin is ponderous. And so we praise you that where sin abounds, grace superabounds because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in that we rejoice, not in our own righteousness, not in our own ability to keep some form of religious law, but in Christ we find our joy and our satisfaction because he is our righteousness. And by him we have been reconciled to you. And so we give you praise, and I pray, Lord, that, that as we continue thinking about your word and praying and singing, Lord, may you be greatly glorified in us as we worship you in spirit and in truth for your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 5, once again this morning, John chapter 5, and we have been looking at John chapter 5 for a little while. And uh, I hate to kind of stop us here, but this will be the last message in John 5 for a while, as Brent will be picking up in the Psalms next week. However, we have come into John chapter 5, perhaps not realizing that John's goal here is to reveal to us the glory of Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ is essential and it's magnificent to us as we see it as God has revealed it in his word. The glory of Christ stands at the blazing center of the Christian solar system. Everything in the church and everything in the believer's life finds its orbit around the glory of Christ. He is the center. He is the anchor of the body of Christ, which keeps all of its parts from flying off into the black oblivion, or whatever it's called, of human religion. (laughs) Without him, frankly, there is no church. Without him, there is no such thing as forgiveness. Without him, there is no reconciliation with God, and there is no such thing as eternal life. Because all life is in him. But with Christ at the center of everything, with Christ at the center of everything, we have all we could possibly ever need, want, or as Paul would say, even imagine. We have no idea, no idea. Just a very vague notion of how glorious God is in Christ. Eye has not seen nor has ear heard all the wonders of what God has planned for us. The mission of the church, therefore, is not to offer the world a religious system or some technique for satisfying their instinctive religious impulses. The church does not exist simply to alleviate suffering in the world or to make people's lives a little more bearable than they would be without religion. Rather, the church exists to worship and glory in the person of Jesus Christ and to call every other person on the planet to come and find their joy in him, this most glorious and infinite of beings. John Owen, Puritan pastor and theologian of the 1600s, wrote this. Some talk of imitating Christ and following his example. But no man will ever become like him by trying to imitate his behavior and life if they know nothing of the transforming power of beholding his glory. That's what liberal theologians do. Let's follow Christ's example. Let's look at the, at the um, Sermon on the Mount And let's do what Jesus says here. Let's, as Schuller would say, let's let's understand the be happy attitudes. If you if you do these things, if you live like Jesus, it's the whole what will Jesus what what would Jesus do scenario. Um, And if we can just know that, then we can follow him, and all will be well with us religiously. 
And that, beloved, totally misses the point. If we don't know him, first of all, and see his glory, and be amazed at who he is in his infinite, majestic person, then we will never be changed into his likeness. If we don't love what the Word of God reveals about Christ, you'll never be changed into his likeness. You will simply be trying to keep the forms of your particular religious laws. Once again, Owen writes, if we regularly beheld the glory of Christ, our Christian walk would become more sweet and pleasant. Our spiritual light and strength would grow daily stronger and our lives would, be, would more gloriously represent the glory if, of Christ. And then he asks, is Christ then glorious in your eyes? Do you see the Father in him Do we daily meditate on the the wisdom, love, grace, goodness, holiness, and righteousness of God as revealed in Christ? That's your chief duty. That's your chief duty. Coming to church should be an expression of that. Coming to church and being with God's people should be just the manifestation, the fruit-bearing of that, which we do all week. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in this vein, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same likeness from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. As we behold him, we become like him. You become what you behold. What is it that you think about when you have time to think? Where does your mind go? What do you like to look at? What is your passion? What are the things that that crank you up and turn you on? You will become like that, whatever that is. And the Apostle Paul is saying, may that be Christ. May it be Christ. You want to be like Christ? Delight in Christ, observe Christ, focus on Christ, love Christ, worship Christ, talk to him, pray to him. Seek his face. Why are we studying the Gospel of John anyway? Why are we studying the Gospel of John? Well, more importantly, why did John write the Gospel of John? I would submit to you that he was moved by the Holy Spirit to write the Gospel of John primarily because he wants us to see the glory of Christ. And by seeing his glory, we will conclude, this must be the Son of God, the Christ. And believing that, you find life in his name. You find life in his name. I mean, isn't isn't that the reason that we're attracted to all the other things? We're looking for life in all the wrong places. We want to see the glory of Christ. It is the blazing glory of Christ that is being revealed to us here in chapter 5. And it was more delightful, has been more delightful to me than I ever imagined. Last week, John revealed the glory of Christ in profound ways as Jesus sought to explain to the Jewish leaders exactly who he is. You remember the story? He came by himself, it appears, to the pool of Bethsaida, uh, Bethesda, I always get that wrong, don't I? Bethesda, he comes to the pool of Bethesda and there's all these sick people, there's a multitude of people who are ill, that's what John says. And he chooses one man, he'd been sick for, sick for 38 years, he comes to him, do you want to be healed? Yes, I have no one to take me into the water. Well, here's what you need to do. Get up, pick up your mat, and leave. And he does. And it's the Sabbath. <laughs> and the Pharisees are furious. And so they confront Jesus. And you know the story, we've rehearsed it. And they, they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, and he says, verse 17, this is John 5, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself 
equal with God. And so, as we said last week, here we come into this next section of chapter 5, and you might expect Jesus, like every other religious leader would do, to say, no, 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 you misunderstand, I'm not claiming deity, I'm not God. Let me explain what I meant. It's not what Jesus does at all. He says, in effect, let me explain why your assumption about what I said is actually true. It's more true than you ever imagined. You look at me and you say, he's making himself out to be equal with God, therefore he's a heretic. And I'm here to tell you, you're going the wrong direction completely. I have insinuated that I am equal with God because I am God. I am equal with the Father in deity, verses 19 and 20. I am equal with the Father in sovereignty, verse 21. I am equal with the Father in authority, verse 22. I am equal with the Father in majesty, verse 23. And I am equal with the Father in the believer's security, verse 24. Now, last week we kind of skimmed past verse 24 because we ran out of time. But this is kind of important. What Jesus says here is absolutely astounding, frankly, as every statement of this has been shocking and astounding. On top of all the other reasons or the other ways that he is equal with God, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, he who hears my word and believes in me and him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has, watch this, passed out of death into life. You've already done that. You've passed out of death and into life. And so here Jesus reveals that he has the power to give life to whomever he wishes. And that's what he said earlier in this text, right? I have the, the power to give life to whoever I please. The question now is, who will be the ones who actually receive that eternal life? Who are they? And his answer, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me. Hear my word, hear believingly, hear with a willingness to receive. Not just hear, he's not saying everybody who's heard the gospel is saved. It's not like some magic potion or magic spell that gets everybody saved. I can just get them to hear the gospel, they'll get saved. That's not what he's saying. It's not that kind of hearing. In fact, Jesus says in Luke uh, chapter 8, take care how you listen. Some people listen to hear. Some people listen to argue. Some people listen for whatever the reason. But listen to receive God's word, God's message, God's truth, God's gospel. If you hear like that and believe in him who sent me, that's the Father, you have eternal life. Hear and obey. Believe and receive. And eternal life, notice this needs to be qualified. Eternal life here is not something that the believer has to wait for. This is great. Now, if you believe in the inspiration, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, we believe not only the thoughts of each passage are inspired but that every word, even down to the tense voice and mood of every verb, is inspired by God. And if that's really the case, and I believe it is, then his word choices here are very significant. Because here's what he said. Let's read it again. I'm reading out of the NAS. I'm not sure what the ESV or one of the translations says. Um, so if you want to tr see the truth, you can pull out your pew Bible and see. I'm just kidding. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me, what's the next word? Has eternal life. You already have eternal life. This is, this is wonderful. In verse 21, he reveals that he has the power to give life. Now he's telling us who gets it. Now he's telling us when they get it. He did not say that those who hear and believe 
will have life. And beloved, this, this is what every religion believes, right? Every religion except one. When, when do you get to heaven or nirvana or, you know, uh, Avalon? Or if you have a car named Avalon, I'm not picking on you. Um, if, what is your heaven? How, when do you get there? When do you enter into life? And they all say, well, duh, it happens when you die, because it's certainly not here. And Jesus will, will say, no, no, not with me. You hear my word and you believe you are already into life. You already have salvation. You've already been reconciled with God. It starts there, and it, and it lasts forever, and it only gets better. It only gets better from there. But it begins at the moment you believe, at that very moment. You exit death, and you enter life. You enter life. Beloved, eternal life is not something that starts when you walk through the pearly gates. Because eternal life is not about your geographic location. It's about who you know. That's what eternal life is. Just flip over. I'm going to flip you to the right several times here. So, I don't know, six, eight pages to the right. Chapter 17 of John. I've, you know, we've looked at this a couple of times. John chapter 3. I'm sorry, John chapter 17, verse 3. Here's Jesus praying to the Father, and he defines eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you. He's speaking to the Father. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not about where you are. It's about who you know. That's eternal life. It's about who you know. Do you know Christ? If you know him, you hear his word, his gospel, his promise, his warning, everything that the gospel entails, and you believe that, then you enter into eternal life immediately. Immediately. It starts now. You can know Christ now. You can fellowship with Christ now. This verse has been called the strongest affirmation of realized eschatology applied to the believer anywhere in the New Testament. If you're theologically minded, that means something to you. If, you're, if you struggle with that, or this is new for you, let me, let me just explain it. Eschatology is the study of what? End times, right, last days, end times. Um, and so he's talking about eternal life, yes. Talking about heaven, yes. Talking about eternity, yes. But he's also talking about now. And so when we talk about realized eschatology... Theologians, when they talk about realized eschatology, what they're saying is that part of eschatology that we get to experience now. And knowing Christ is one of them. Knowing Christ, listen, we don't know Christ as well as we will. We're going to talk about this some more here in this message. But there is, it's not just a not yet. There's an already aspect to this. We will know him, but we can know him now. We can know him now. You see, beloved, salvation is not just something that you experience later on. It's about having fellowship with the Father through Christ now. It's about knowing Christ now. There are many things that reveal the glory of Jesus to us, but this is experientially, listen to me, this is experientially the best part. If you want to go to heaven for any other reason than to know Christ and be in his presence, then I question whether you know him at all. The point of going to heaven is to be with him. It's not the streets of gold. It's not, you know, what are those four-faced Creatures, what do they really look like? I'm really curious. You know what? I'm curious about that too. <laughs> but you know what? When I walk in, when I, when I step out of this life, when I step out of this life into that one, 
I'm not going to care about that event. My first question is going to be, where is he? Where is he? And I don't even think I'm going to have time to ask it. He's going to be right there. Right there. No more tears, no more sorrow. Glory. Just glory. And that won't be, that's, that's not something you have to wait for, beloved. It's not something you have to wait for. You can experience a relationship with God now. And if you're not, don't blame it on God. It's not his fault. We can actually be reconciled to God and begin fellowshipping with Christ now in this life long before we ever see him face to face. But Jesus has more to reveal about himself. In addition to all the other ways Jesus is equal to the Father, there's more. Verses 25 and 26. I couldn't find a way to fit this into the alliteration, so I'll just give it to you straight. Jesus is equal to the Father in resurrection power. I was going to say vitality, and I was going to have to explain that. And we don't have time for that. Resurrection power. He is equal with Jesus, uh, with the Father in resurrection power. Watch this, verses 25 and 26. Truly, truly, there it is again. That phrase is the third time he's used it, once in 19, once in 24, and now once again. He's saying, am I losing you yet? Am I losing you yet? Pay attention to what I'm going to say. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. What I'm going to say is absolutely true, and you need to get it and not miss it. I'm choosing every single word carefully here, so don't think I'm glossing. I'm not glossing over. I'm not giving you vague generalities. I'm telling you what is absolutely true. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and all who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. There's deep theology here. This is rich stuff. I want you to notice how Jesus begins. Truly, truly, we've talked about that. But notice the next phrase. An hour is coming and now is. What's he saying? You, you know, you look at this and you go, okay, which is it? Is it, is it coming or is it here? It's like I have a Christmas present. It's coming and it's here. Well, if it's here, let me have it now, right? <laughs> is it now or is it later? Well, it's both. A little bit now, a lot later, a lot later. A little taste now. Full experience later. This is the already and the not yet. The not yet is going to be infinitely more glorious. But the already, it's going to be glorious. Be amazing. I'm telling you, that hour has come. The reason that hour has come, that time, that season, that, that ion is here because I am. And where I am, there exists both the already and the not yet. An hour is coming and now is. On the one hand, there will be a day when those who hear the voice of the Son of God will all be raised from the dead. On the other hand, that day is now also here. How can that already come? I mean, this is very specific. They're going to hear my voice and they're going to rise from the dead. How can that be already? We understand that to be eschatology. We understand that to be not yet. It's coming, and there's, you know, about, I don't know, 10 different versions of the chart that shows us when that's going to happen. I think what Jesus is saying here is that one of the things he came to earth to do is to give people a taste of what eternity will be like, what heaven will be like. And so he sees this man at the pool. And we don't know what his illness is. We know it was 38 years. He couldn't get himself into the water, so he had some kind of paralysis or something. Let's, let's say he was lame, okay? We, we just don't know. So Jesus heals a lame man. What's Jesus saying when he heals the lame man? This is what it will be like in heaven. There'll be no lame people. Nobody will need a wheelchair. And no church will need ramps or elevators. And there won't be any buildings for churches anyway. 
There'll be no lame people. When Jesus heals a blind man, what's he saying? I'm showing you what it's going to be like then. There's no blind people in heaven. Everybody sees perfectly. Your glasses never get dirty. Jesus raises somebody from the dead. This is what heaven is going to be like. There are no dead people in heaven. None. Everybody there is fully alive. Everyone. Cast out a demon. This is what heaven is like. There are no demons there. You'll never be harassed by them or by Satan ever again. Because wherever I am, that is what heaven is like. That is what heaven is like. So this is where he's going with this, and, and I can demonstrate to you that this is not just, I'm turning to the right again, turn with me to the right, to chapter 11. Chapter 11, those of you who know the Gospel of John know this is his seventh sign, raising, uh, and his last, other than the resurrection itself. But here he's not raising himself. He's raising a man named Lazarus, his dear friend. Uh, I say he was a dear friend because he was the brother of Mary and Martha. This is a very, very close friend of his. And you know the story. A message comes to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is sick. And so what does he do? He doesn't go running down uh, to Bethany where they are near Jerusalem. Um, And no doubt the disciples thought he's not responding to this because everybody knows if he goes to Jerusalem, he's a dead man. And so Jesus hangs out for four days. At the end of the four days, he says, let's go. Where are we going? Well, we're going to Jerusalem. Don't you know they're going to kill you there? Well, look, it's still daytime. We work during the day. The night hasn't come yet. And one of them says, uh, okay, well, let's follow him to his death then, I guess. And so they reluctantly follow him. They get to Bethany, and we pick up the story in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he... He, that is, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said to the Lord, okay, now, pay attention. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He wouldn't have died. Where have you been? You are life. If you were here, he'd be alive. But even now, verse 22, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And so Jesus says, let's talk a little eschatology, shall we? Your brother will rise again. Which, by the way, I was telling the first service, I think that's so amazingly appropriate when you're ministering to someone who is at their deathbed or someone who's just died, someone who just learned they had cancer. Um, Eschatology is so significant, so important, not only for those days, but for every day, and I'll tell you why. Eschatology is not given to us All of this truth about the end times isn't given to us so that we can make neat charts and argue with one another. It's a a necessary in-house debate. This shouldn't be dividing us. Eschatology, here's what eschatology is for. The study of end times was intended, I believe, by God to do this, to give us a point of reference in the sky, as it were. True north. Set your life to that. Set your life to that every morning. This morning, I got up, I was getting ready for church, and uh, I went over to my iPhone. You know, how warm is it outside? Whoa, it's 65 degrees outside. I got to go outside. It's cooler outside than it is inside. So I step outside, the porch light was on, I flipped it off, and I stepped outside and I looked up at Orion's belt and the constellation of Orion and thought, that's magnificent. I haven't seen a clear sky in Texas like that here in Fort Worth in a while. And it's the wrong direction. You have to turn around the other way to see the North Star. But when mariners used to sail, they'd always figure out where North is. True North. True North. You find out where true North is, everything else makes sense. 
eschatology is to be true north for us. What do we know? We know Jesus is coming back. We know he's coming. We know there's going to be a judgment. We know there's eternity that's waiting for us. We know there are rewards. And so every day, every morning, orient yourself to Jesus' coming. Orient yourself to the second coming, to the judgment, to the, the blessing, to the reward, to eternity with Christ. If you make every decision based on that, you won't have to worry about the details of the sermon I preached a couple weeks ago. All of it will fall into place. Because your orientation will be right. And so, I'm just saying, it's appropriate and necessary for us to remind each other when we're facing difficulty. There have been times in counseling when the, when the case was so severe, and I'm talking with a brother or sister in the Lord whose wife or husband has left them and there's no turning back and the disaster is going to occur, the train wreck is happening even as we speak, and I have to say, brother... What I need to tell you now is I can't fix this. You need to get your eyes focused on the author and finisher of your faith because there will be reward. There will be blessing. There will be recompense someday, but you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to wait. There's a span, a short span of life between here and when Jesus returns or you die and go see him. I don't know how long that's going to be, but you're going to have to be patient and trust him. And it looks like that's what Jesus is doing here. Your brother will rise again. And so Martha says, okay, I understand the eschatology. Jesus, you've, you've taught me these things. Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Eschatology. But then Jesus says something that none of you can say and I can't say. I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, no, no, Mary, I am the resurrection. That's amazing. I am the resurrection. If anybody has ever been raised, me. It's me. I did that. Every resurrection, I did that. I'm the only one who can. I'm the only one I can, who can. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And I love verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me <laughs> never die. You're never going to die. You're never going to die. So you're ministering to someone and they're really, really bad sick with cancer. I remember doing this with my son Andrew a couple of times when he was in the hospital getting ready to cart him off. Daddy, am I going to die? Nope. I can say on the authority of the word of God, John chapter 11, verse 26, you're never going to die. You're never going to die. If the Lord takes you, you will merely step through. You're going to step through the door of death, and there he will be, and glory. But not, there will not be one millisecond of doubt when that happens. You will be in his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You will not die. You will only begin in that moment to truly live. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. In other words, life finds its source in me. Raising people from the dead is no big deal for me because I am the resurrection. I am life. If there's anything on this planet that is alive, it's because of me. This is what Jesus was referring to when he says, an hour is coming and now is. Someday there will be a great resurrection, but resurrection also happens now because the source of all life is among you and I am he. And I think, you know what John is telling us? He's saying this, behold the glory 
Beloved, don't read your Bibles without looking for it. Don't come to church without looking for the glory of Jesus. If you do, you're looking for the wrong thing, and you're looking in the wrong places, and you will always be dissatisfied. The glory of Christ, he possesses the same life that is in the Father. That's what he means in verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Life in himself. The reason there is life in the world is because Jesus is life. He has life in himself. My friend John is being very specific with the language here. The whole point of this is that Jesus is equal with the Father. So John doesn't present Jesus as some kind of a channel, as some kind of a conduit. Here's the Father, and he's God, and he has life, and he is life, and Jesus is the conduit through which life comes to us. No, no, that's not what he's saying here. The Father is life. Jesus also is life. He is one with the Father. They are absolutely inseparable, though distinct in person. Same in essence. What does it mean that the Father is God in essence? That's what it means that the Son is God. That's what it means that the Spirit is God. He's God. And so John, John doesn't present Jesus as a channel or a conduit of life. Rather, he is life in the same way that the Father is life. How is it that Jesus can give spiritual life to sinners and raise the dead back to life? It is because he has life resident in himself. In other words, are you ready for this? He is self-existent. He has always lived. Nobody gave him life. He is life. And the only reason anything in the universe lives is because of him. Whereas humans must receive life from him, he is the source. Jesus has life in himself. He's God. He is equal with the Father. I mean, I don't know that there is a text that makes this more clear. He is equal with the Father in deity. He's equal with the Father in sovereignty. He's equal with the Father in authority. He's equal with the Father in majesty. He is equal with the Father in the believer's security. And now he's equal with the Father in, the, in resurrection power. I mean, what are the differences between the Father and Son other than functional subordination, which we talked about last week? They are one. But one more thing, one more thing. Jesus is equal to the Father in final judgment. In final judgment. Verses 27 through 29. And he, that is the Father, gave him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Notice, he doesn't say, and now is. So he's talking about a specific event in the future. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. By the way, that's exactly what he said to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. And he did. Those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. It's kind of sobering. Notice here, just an observation, everyone is going to be raised. Everyone. Everyone who has ever died will be raised. Think of people that you know or know of who have died. They're all going to be raised. Adam is going to be raised. Cain is going to be raised. Abraham is going to be raised. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be raised. The kings of Egypt, the pharaohs, are all going to be raised. Moses, Joshua, the Hittites, every one of them, the Perizzites, um, and all the otherites, they're all going to be raised. Hitler, Pol Pot, going to be raised. 
Um, Elvis? <laughs> Gonna be raised. And everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone will see him for who he is. No one gets a pass. No pope. No religious leader. Nobody gets around this. Everybody stands at his judgment bench. And I understand, eschatologically, that there are differences. But that's not what this text is talking about. Let's just stick here, and we'll save the rest for another time. One day, every person who has ever lived will be called upon to stand before the all-knowing, all-seeing eyes of the infinite judge, who is Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that, judgment. I fear that there are millions, perhaps billions of people who are living not with any reference to true north, which is this day, but rather with a live and let live or live and let die attitude of grab everything you can, there are no rules, just right, kind of a, um, a duck dynasty evangelicalism that just, you know, however you want to live is, is fine as long as you say a prayer at the end. I like those guys, by the way, but um, no model for Christianity. And I think there's an awful lot of people who don't have any concept that there are only two things in this life that are true. Number one, you're alive now. And number two, you are going to die. And there's a third thing that's more important than any of them. And after you die, it's not over. It will only just begin. And how you spend the rest of your life depends on how things go for you when you stand before the judge. How are things going to go for you when you stand before the judge? You may say, well, why do I need to face judgment? Why do I need to face judgment? I'm a nobody. Nobody even knows me. Uh, pastor, whatever your name is, you don't know me. I'm just visiting or I'm just listening to you on the internet. You don't know me. I don't know you. I mean, I get up in the morning. I go to Chick-fil-A. I do the thing with the chickens. And, uh, or I go to Voss Lighting and I deliver light bulbs. Or, or I, I go to, to, um, to uh, Lockheed Martin and, you know, we build airplanes or whatever. Look, I mind my own business. And I come home. I take care of my family. I bring them to church. I haven't done anything really bad. I mean, why do I have to stand before the judge? I've never even stood before a human judge. Why am I going to have to stand before the divine judge? And the answer is this. That while you may feel like an insignificant person, you're not. God created you for a magnificent purpose. He created you. He gave you life so you would magnify the glory of your king, namely Jesus. And so the question is, whose glory have you lived for? Who did you live for? Who did you worship? Who or what ruled your life? And these are the kinds of questions that need to be answered on that day. And Jesus describes it differently. He's going to divide the nations like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he's going to say to one group, Blessed, uh, come, you blessed of my Father, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to the, to the goats, the other group, he's going to say, You know, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared not for you, but for the devil and his angels. But since you followed them, you go where they go. You say, well, how is he going to make this decision? How, how is he going to judge? Upon what basis will he form his judgment? Um, the answer is in verse 29. We will all hear his voice and come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Here's what he's saying. The decision that's made for you will not be will not be made apart from evidence. It will all be neat and legal. 
Evidence will be called for and presented to the judge, and he will examine the evidence and make his call. At least that's kind of the motif that he's using here, kind of the figure he's using. You will not be condemned without evidence, nor will you be welcomed into the kingdom of the Father without evidence. There has to be evidence presented, and that's what he will do. It's important to understand that the final judgment will be in accordance with your deeds, but not because of your deeds. In other words, no one is saved by good works. Their righteous deeds or their unrighteous deeds are either evidence of their salvation or their lack of it. Your evidence of loving Christ and living for Christ or the lack of it. It'll be one or the other. Someone will say, well, it sounds like you're inserting your evangelical reform theology into this text. Well, let me show you um, why I say that that's what Jesus means here. Because you can see it in John chapter 15. Turn to the right again. I know, right, left, right, left. Here's John 15. This is Jesus speaking. So when you're trying to interpret a text and Interpret it according to its context, and if you can get the same author to speak on the same issue in the same context, same book, then, uh, then you, can, you can have pretty clear, uh, you can be pretty confident that, that your conclusion is true. So here it is, chapter 15. This is the vine and the branch analogy. Jesus is saying that he's the vine. And if he's the vine, then what are you? Well, you are branches that grow out of the vine. Now, the branch is where the fruit is born. So if you're a vine, you're going to produce grapes if you're connected to, if you're a branch that's connected to the vine, you're going to produce fruit because that's what the vine does. And so that's the analogy. And here's what he says. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Okay, so there's another part of the story. There's a, there's a vine dresser. There's God the father and he's going to play a part in this Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, he, that bears fruit, he prunes. Everyone say, ouch. He prunes it so that he may bear more fruit. What's he saying so far? He's saying this, God created you to bear fruit. He expects there to be fruit in your life. Or to say it in the same terms that he used in John chapter 5, he's looking for good works, good deeds, deeds of righteousness that can be attributed to him and give glory to him. That's what he's looking for. If that's not on there, hmm, trouble. Verse 3, he's speaking to his disciples, you are already clean because of my word, which I've spoken to you. Now, verse 4, abide in me. Stay in me. Stay connected to me. Be a part of me and I in you. As the branch cannot, what's that word? Can not, cannot bear fruit of, its, of itself. What's he saying? The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. So here's, here's the deal. You find a a branch from a grapevine. Show me a branch from a grapevine that's laying on the ground, and I'll, I'll show you a shriveled up branch that has no fruit, or its fruit is dead. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in me, unless it is getting life from me. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he who is getting this constant nourishing life from me, the, the life sap of my being is coming into you. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. And so at the final judgment, there's not going to be any... There's not going to be any dangling chads. There's not going to be any difficult things, votes to read, or, you know, it's, it's not going to be that terribly complicated. Fruit or no fruit? Fruit or no fruit? That's going to be, going to be the distinguishing factor between sheep and goats. Fruit or no fruit? 
And in case there's any question about that, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, if there's anyone who is not getting the life nourishment that I give, because you are a part of me, by grace, through faith, this is talking about salvation, if anyone does not abide in me, what do you do with a branch that doesn't abide in the vine? Well, you throw it away. It's thrown away as a branch, and it dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Wow, do we need any commentary on what that analogy is? Whatever those branches are, we know two things. They're not in Christ, and in the end, they're going to be thrown into hell. Judgment. Why did I take you there? I took you there to show you that in Jesus' theology, in Jesus' theology, your works do not earn your salvation. Your works are only evidence to whether you have salvation or you don't. Have you obeyed the gospel or not? Do you belong to Christ or not? Is it faith or is it unbelief with you? That's what he's talking about. And we see this in other texts as well. God doesn't find um, God doesn't find any deeds acceptable to him except those who come from a relationship with Christ. And Jesus makes it clear when he says, apart from me you can do nothing. But the Apostle Paul also makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 2. And I just, we have a minute. Let's just flip there. Way to the right now. I'm, I can't tell you how many pages. But Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. And all of you Awana kids, you know this verse. You've memorized it, and most of you parents probably have too. For by grace, this is Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of what? Works. It's not a result of works. Why? Why, why did God make it that way? So that no one may boast. For, and here's the explanation, why did God do it this way? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works. Not by good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. Your salvation isn't by good works. You were saved for good works. The fruit of salvation is good works. And so when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to say, let's see the evidence. See the evidence. This man who raised seven children and pastored the church for a couple of decades, now standing before me, uh, titles me nothing in God's mind. Um, your achievements may be nothing, in God's eyes, the question is, where is the evidence that you belong to my son? And on that basis, some who are resurrected will not see life. They will not see life. It is called in John chapter 5, verse 29, a resurrection to judgment. And he's being... A, He's being terse and cryptic here. But the term judgment, I don't think, needs to be explained. It's condemnation. It's condemnation. And so you see, my friend, you were created for the glory of Jesus Christ. Life is found in the glory of Jesus Christ. Meaning for your life is found in Jesus Christ. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. Your purpose for existence is found in Jesus Christ. He himself is true north because he is life and he will be your judge on the last day. The only opinion that matters in the end is his opinion of your life, not even yours. And beloved, I don't know about you, but for me that is such a stabilizing factor in my life. It's such a stabilizing factor. 
And knowing that I will stand before him one day, I can't tell you how many decisions I make every week intentionally in the light of that. There are times when I'm just mad at somebody. Just mad. And yet I got to sit down and talk. And you know what I myself? I think about the Old Testament. And I think about men in the Old Testament who blew it once. And the course of their whole life after that changed. And I always pray, God, help me be faithful. In light of the resurrection, in light of what you have for me in the future, in light of the glory of Christ. And you know what? God puts a rock under your feet. You stand strong. You act faithfully. And God blesses amazingly, amazingly. And it's all for his glory. Listen, he is equal with the Father in deity. He's equal with the Father in sovereignty, authority, majesty, security of the believer. He is equal in resurrection power, and ultimately, he is equal in judgment. It will be the Son who judges. And so I plead with you this morning, if you don't know Christ, I plead with you to give up your misconceptions about religion. Give up your misconceptions about who Jesus is. Don't listen to the world The world isn't telling you right because the world doesn't know. Listen to God. There is no way to know God apart from Jesus Christ. Behold the glory this morning, his glory, and repent of your own opinions about who God is and embrace Christ for whom God has revealed him to be. And as you do, you will find that all your sin, all of your guilt is washed away. It's all washed away. And you will be reconciled to God forever. For here's how Jesus says it. Truly, truly, I say, he who hears my words and believes that I'm telling the truth, believes what I say, has eternal life. He already has it. It's yours that quickly. If you're one who already knows Christ, then know this. The secret to your growth in Christ, your sanctification, comes this way. It comes by pushing out of your life every unnecessary distraction that keeps you from beholding with all clarity the glory of the Son of God. And there are so many lawful things that we do that keep us so busy and so distracted that we never have time to see the glory of Christ. You know what I love to do? I love to take, you know, almost anywhere in Scripture, especially anywhere in the Apostle Paul, just take any book, any book that the Apostle Paul has written. He could do this probably with any of the New Testament books. Uh, This is kind of a, a long process, so it takes some time. I haven't gotten outside of Paul yet. But here's what you do. Pick a book. Pick 1 Timothy. Pick 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans. Pick something, anything, and just start reading and say to yourself, every time Christ is mentioned by title or even by pronoun, I'm going to ask myself, what is it that makes Christ glorious here? In between these two words, what is it that was on Paul's mind that he inserted the name of Jesus Christ And limit yourself to one line. One line. Just write it out in one, one line. Don't, don't go to the second line. Pick a small book to start like Philippians, First Timothy or something like that. And just do one chapter. I'm telling you. You pick First Timothy, you do that, one chapter, you're going to fill almost the entire page. And you know what you're going to have a list of? <laughs> the glory of Christ. And then you take that list and you start talking to him about what you've discovered about his glory. I dare you not to see the glory of Christ. You will see it, and you will repent, and you will rejoice, and you will weep, and you will wonder what you've been doing with your entire life. Puritan pastor John Owen, I'm getting this from his little book called The Glory of Christ. He writes this. Only a sight of his glory and nothing else 
will truly satisfy God's people. The hearts of believers are like a magnetized needle which cannot rest until it is pointing north. So also, a believer magnetized by the love of Christ will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. In this duty, he says, I desire to live and to die. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. The more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to the world, and it will become to me like something that is dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. Beloved, you want to grow in Christ. You start thinking like that. And you will grow. The whole put off, put on dynamic, that'll just happen. It's just going to happen. You're going to have to fight for it, yes. You're going to have to work for it, yes. Work out your, uh, your salvation with fear and trembling, yes. But I promise you, as you do it God's way, you will feel subjectively that God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you will grow, and you will change, and you will wonder why you ever wasted time doing the things you loved before. Let's pray. Oh, Father, so much, so much to learn about the glory of Christ. So far to grow. And oh, Father, I, for one, need more of him and less of me, and far, far less of this world. Oh, Father, forgive us for delighting in what Owen called the painted beauties of this life. Rather than disciplining ourselves to see the glory of Christ, oh, Father, change us, remold us, reshape us, reform us, cause us to be who Jesus is, just like Christ, I pray, and all of it for his great glory and for our own great joy, we pray in Jesus' name.